0: Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hey folks, welcome to Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Jamar Tisby, and we're doing something a little bit different this week. In all honesty, with the holidays coming up as I record this, scheduling has been a bit tricky, so my regular co-host Tyler Burns is off doing big, wonderful, and important things. That's what he often does. And so this week, it's just going to be me, solo. That's right. You get to listen to my voice for this whole episode. But I promise you, it'll be shorter than typical, and it'll be, I hope, engaging. It's something I've been wanting to do for quite a long time. What this episode is going to be like is I'm going to take a few current events, exactly three this week, and just talk about them. I'll give you a rundown of what happened, and then I'll give you some of my brief insights and evaluations. Take it or leave it. Just my two cents worth of thoughts. And so this week we're going to cover uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's report on racism, quite an extensive report, sort of earth-shaking historical account of the seminary's past, and we're going to evaluate that for what it says, what it didn't say, uh, what needs to happen next. We'll also talk about the bipartisan uh, criminal justice reform bill that just passed in the Senate and the significance of that, what the bill does, and where we should go from here. And then also, not to focus too much on Congress or the Senate, but an anti-lynching bill finally passed the Senate. It's a milestone. It's historic. And so we'll evaluate that a little bit. But before I get to that, I just want to give you a couple of reminders. Number one, don't forget about the Witness National Conference. It's on joy and justice happening October 4th through the 6th in Chicago in 2019. It's our first national conference. We'll have more details for you early in the new year. We'll have links where you can order your tickets. We'll have speakers and all those things getting lined up. But if you are the type of person who has a prayer list please keep us on your prayer list, the witness in general, but especially this national conference. It's going to take a ton of resources, a ton ton of time, ton of energy, uh, and we've never done it before. So we can use all the prayer power we can get, and uh, thank you for your support there. Also want to remind you of the Color of Compromise. Yes, I'm self-promoting, but I also want to give you the heads up on some pre-order bonuses. So you can pre-order the Color of Compromise, and if you do, you will get a foreword by my friend and brother in the struggle, Lecrae. That's right, the one and only Grammy Award winning hip-hop artist Lecrae wrote the foreword to The Color of Compromise. Very thankful he did that. You'll also get a sneak peek at chapters one and two, as well as five short videos by me and an exclusive podcast episode where Tyler interviews me about the book. You can do that on thecolorofcompromise.com and order there, or you can go to amazon.com. It's available in hardcover, Kindle, and an audiobook that I read myself. I also want to do one more thing. Uh, we get so many fantastic reviews. We've gotten 582 reviews so far. We have a solid five-star rating, and I just want to read a few of those. The first one is called Time Well Spent, submitted by Dr. Strange. And he said, these guys love Jesus, and they think seriously about racial issues in the church and in our country. The show is super thought-provoking. I don't always agree with them, but they have given me a new lens through which to consider and ponder these issues. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Dr. Strange. That is a fair review, and uh, I'd be kind of scared if you always agreed with us, because I know we're not always right. Another one comes from Amy Senberg, and she says, this is essential for shifting my paradigm. She goes on to state, in 2014, I came to realize how much I needed to listen and learn from those with a different perspective than my own. I needed a steady stream of the voices of people of color and of women to fill my mind and grow my heart. I sincerely count it as a privilege to listen in as Jamar and Tyler talk about cultural and theological issues from their vantage point. I often have to listen to an episode twice because I don't get it the first time, but I'm hungry to learn, and this podcast has been bred for my heart and soul. It's a very nice review. Um, if you have to listen twice, it's also probably because we're not as clear as we should we. We try to get better at that every week. And then lastly, from Blake 84 he calls it such a blessing. Our church has recently gone through a racial justice series, and in a season where it was easy to question whether or not we were being too bold, it was so encouraging to have a podcast like this that had gone before us speaking hard but deeply important truths. I'm so grateful for the work that Tyler and Jamar have done. So thank you guys for leaving us reviews. If you haven't already, we need you to subscribe, rate, and review. What that does is it bumps us up in the rankings, and it makes our podcast more visible. So if you found this helpful and you want others to know about it, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. It's never too late, and every little bit counts. So let's get into our first topic. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary released a report on slavery and racism in the history of the seminary, also called SBTS, or just Southern Seminary. And if you haven't seen it, it is a 71-page report uncovering the history of racism at the seminary. I think part of the impetus behind this, uh, the President Al Mohler commissioned a a, um, panel of six people to write this report and do this research. I think part of it was, number one, the Southern Baptist Convention has been doing similar work, and SBTS is the flagship seminary of the SBC. And then number two, schools like Princeton and other Ivy League and secular universities have been doing some really critical work uncovering their institution's connection to racism and slavery. In other words, a lot of the elite colleges and universities that are in existence today owe their existence to the unrequited labor of enslaved African people. And so they're going back, they're uncovering the names, the dates, the places, and the financial connections, and repenting of that, and changing names on buildings, and writing reports, and emphasizing this. And I think uh, Dr. Moeller was looking at this and said, you know what, we're Christians, and we should be doing this kind of work as well. So uh, to their credit, they did, and they, they went way back into the seminary's history, Uh, A a lot of these truths were not brand new per se, but this is the first time they've been collected into a single report like this, which has been commissioned from the very highest levels of the administration. Uh, As a historian in training and an academic geek, uh, this was one-of-a-kind primary source research. So what this commission had access to were all the documents um, in Southern Seminary's archival records. So they got letters and diaries and uh, official documents. And so they were able to put together a pretty comprehensive picture, especially of the four founders, all of whom were slave owners. And lest we forget, the the reason there even is a Southern Baptist Convention uh, and the seminary associated with it is because prior to the Civil War, The Baptists split north and south over the issue of whether missionaries could own slaves and still be missionaries and Christians in good standing. Southern Baptists said, yes, they could. And so it was very connected to slavery. And this report outlines it not just for the convention or the denomination, but specifically for the seminary. So it pulls no punches. And they were very honest and forthcoming about the history of racism from some of the most important constituents in the seminary's history. And I do think, in general, this report is a step in the right direction. I want to give credit where credit is due. This is a very big step for the seminary and for the officials. They did get some pushback and blowback, both from uh, Southern Baptists and from other people who are not affiliated with the school, uh, but were critical of the document. And so I try not to be someone who can't give any credit to evangelicals when they make overtures toward racial progress. Um, And I do want to say this is a step in the right direction, but it's still a long journey. My main critique of the report is that it stops too soon. So the report goes all the way from the seminary's founding in the mid-19th century up to the early 1960s, mainly ending with a very controversial visit of Martin Luther King Jr., to the seminary's campus. Uh, the students received him well. Many of the other constituents, whether trustees or donors, did not receive him very well. Um, but that's kind of where it ends. It, it has a really quick conclusion, and I think it can give the impression that racism at the seminary is all in the past. What I would have liked to see in the report is the continuity between the 1960s all the way up to the present day, but at least to the end of the 20th century. And so you would have to talk about things like the increasing politicization of white evangelicalism, the alignment between many white evangelical churches and institutions and in the Republican Party, the impact that that has had on race relations, as well as some of the uh, continuing issues regarding race relations, um, In a New York Times op-ed, Lawrence Ware had a a very public break. He renounced his ordination in the SBC because they flubbed passing a resolution on the alt-right at their annual meeting along with some other issues. So if you want to delve into that main critique about they stopped too soon, go over to the Religion News Service. Look up my name, Jamar Tisby. I've written a brief uh, article on this very topic. Um, But lastly, on this Southern Baptist Theological Seminary report on slavery and racism, I'll say that the response to the report is telling. It should be instructive. So there are a lot of people who said, well, so what? What are you going to do about it? And there are a lot of people who, who just look skeptically on any effort of white evangelicals to address racism because they think the whole enterprise is corrupt and can never do right. Um, now, it can be easy to dismiss those critiques and say, well, these people aren't going to give any credit no matter what we do, so just ignore them. I think there are certainly those people out there. But at the same time, we should also look at it as an indication of the level of distrust there is out there, especially from racial and ethnic minorities toward the SBC and its entities like the seminary. In other words, over a period of decades, even more than a century, The denomination and its institutions have, in uh, ways that are overt and covert, supported the status quo of racism in this country. And so it would be naive to think that a single report, no matter how honest and truth-telling it is, would actually uh, shift the tide and restore that trust. Trust is easily lost, and it's very hard to gain back. You can only gain trust back one step at a time, one action at a time. And so I think what seminary officials should do in, in terms of looking at the response to this is say, you know what, this is just one action among many that we are taking and that we need to take. And uh, if we keep doing what we're doing, if we keep moving in the right direction, then slowly over time, we will build more trust and recognizing that there are some people that um, the, the hurt is too real. The pain is too deep, and they'll never regain trust, Uh, but you still have to do the right thing. So good first step on that. Uh, Still more work to go, but that's the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Report on Racism. And speaking of first steps, let's move on to topic number two a sweeping criminal justice reform bill that some are hailing as the most extensive reforms in the past 20 years just passed the Senate. It is called the First Step Act, and it is notable for its bipartisan support. It passed the Senate, um, 87 votes to 12, all Democratic senators voted for it, and 12 Republican senators opposed it. Now, this is a pretty big criminal justice bill. And here are just a few of the things that it does for people who are incarcerated. Number one... You can earn credits for early release if you participate in recidivism reduction programs, so uh, education programs, character building programs, things of that nature. You can earn credits towards your early release. It it also expands other early release programs like uh, the uh, halfway houses and the ability for people who are soon to be released to fill out their sentences in a halfway house instead of in uh, prison and it prevents shackling of female inmates while they are giving birth. Seems like a pretty good idea, pretty humane and reasonable. It bans almost all solitary confinement for juveniles. Same thing. uh, When people are that young, especially solitary confinement almost always does more harm than good. And it reduces some of the sentencing disparities between crack and powder cocaine. Basically the same substance, but crack is used in inner-city neighborhoods and high-poverty neighborhoods at a higher rate that has been penalized more harshly than powder cocaine, which has been used in more affluent areas and by white people, even though the rates of drug use are virtually the same. And so by the time you hear this podcast, it's likely that the House would have voted on the bill and the president has already signaled that he would sign it. So in other words, passing the Senate is passing the main hurdle to this bill getting signed into law, and everything else seems like it'll fall into place, which is great. But you should also curb your enthusiasm just a little bit. It only applies, this this First Step Act only applies to federal prisons. These prisons house about 200,000 of the nation's 2 million incarcerated persons. Most people who are in prison are in state or local facilities. So this law does not actually apply to the majority of incarcerated persons. Number two, it took an enormous amount of effort to pass a relatively mild criminal justice reform bill. I say relatively mild because there were previous iterations which had even more sweeping reforms, but those were amended out of the final version of the bill that got passed. Um, And the fact that it took so much effort to get this thing going and to get bipartisan support does not bode well for future efforts uh, at criminal justice reform that might push for more comprehensive changes. In fact, uh, two senators, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and John Kennedy of Louisiana, they tried at the last minute to pass what they call, quote unquote, poison pill amendments that would have, if, if passed, effectively neutralized the bill's reforms. And they were only narrowly defeated. So there was still a lot of debate and controversy, even in the final uh, version of the amended bill. But this is something that Christians ought to pay attention to. By this, I mean criminal justice reform. For example, in the Southern Seminary report that I just talked about, they detailed the fact that uh, one of their board of trustees members, also a, a former governor, he basically saved the institution from financial ruin by donating $50,000 to the seminary to keep it open. Uh he made his fortune though through convict leasing. And so black men would get swept up into prisons and jails for very minor offenses like vagrancy and then a a company or an individual would pay the state or the prison And they would basically get the labor of these convicts. Uh, Well, it was a fate that um, a a historian or a journalist, uh, Oshinsky, says is worse than slavery because in slave days, a slave was an investment, so to speak. Um, A plantation owner paid a lot of money for a human being and his or her labor, and uh, they had a vested interest in keeping that person at least at a minimum level of health, so that they could be productive. Well, now that these folks are convicts, there's no such um, hesitation to treat them with brutality. And so many of these convicts who were leased out for their labor were worked literally to death, dumped in unmarked graves, and some of those graves are still being found today. So it was a grave miscarriage of justice that resulted in ill-gotten gain for many, many people, including Christians. It's also an issue of the image of God in people, and even though these folks have been, sometimes, sometimes they're still waiting in prison for their court date, but even though many of these people have been convicted of a crime, uh, as Brian Stevenson says, you're more than the worst thing you've ever done, and we should still treat people humanely. I'm coming at this from And more and more personal perspective because I've had the blessing and the opportunity to teach in the prison-to-college pipeline program uh, started by two professors, Patrick Alexander and Dr. Otis Pickett. And uh, it it, it brings me face-to-face with incarcerated men. And these folks, many of them have served decades in prison. They're in the pre-release program, so they've got six months to a year. Uh, before they get out and they're taking these classes as a way to improve themselves and prepare themselves for life on the outside. Um, Many of these men, they want nothing more than to uh, work every day at a steady job that pays the bills and to reconnect with their families, um, spouses, loved ones, and especially children who they want to have a positive impact on. And so to the extent possible, with all the necessary precautions, we should make their re-entry into society, and citizenry as smooth as possible. So, just my two cents on the First Step Act. And finally, we get to our last topic. After nearly 200 failed attempts, the Senate has finally passed an anti-lynching bill. That's right. We finally are getting an anti-lynching bill officially on the books. And it's been a century. Literally, the first anti-lynching bill was introduced in 1918, During the height of Jim Crow, when lynching, which is categorized as murder by a mob without due process of law or courts, was at its height. And for years, decades, a century, we never got, as Congress never passed, an anti-lynching bill until this year. The bill was introduced in June of 2018 and sponsored by the only three black senators currently in the U.S. Senate, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Republican Tim Scott. And when it passed, Harris wrote on Twitter, the moment when the United States Senate agreed unanimously to make lynching a federal crime for the first time. History, she wrote. And the bill stated that 4,742 people were reported lynched in the U.S. between 1882 and 1968. It says that 99% of all perpetrators had escaped punishment and called lynching the ultimate expression. Uh, the ultimate expression of racism in the United States. And it truly was. It was a visible sign of racial terror. I write about it in The Color of Compromise, some gruesome, gruesome details that were um, expressly designed to intimidate and instill fear in the black population in the United States. Now, in 2005, the Senate had passed a resolution apologizing for its failure to pass anti-lynching legislation historically, but no one actually passed an anti-lynching bill until now. And so my two cents of analysis, number one, it shouldn't have been the three black senators who introduced this bill and got it passed in 2018. Not that they couldn't do that. It was well within their purview, and I'm thankful that they did it. But why didn't someone else? Why did it have to be the three black senators? In other words, anyone can see on its face that lynching is unjust and that the United States has had a horrible history of lynching. And if we didn't have the law on the books, then we needed one. In other words, it doesn't take black people to recognize that. But it's sort of indicative of race relations in general in this country. Um, black people are once again responsible for righting the wrongs of racism. People of color have been victimized by racism People of color have been victimized by racism and racial terrorism, yet all too often we are the ones expected to provide solutions. Now, certainly we have insights that shouldn't be ignored, but neither should the burden for correcting historical and present racial issues fall solely on people of color. This is an issue where we need allies, and it could have been anyone, black or white, Republican or Democrat, who introduced this bill. It happened to only get pressed by the three black senators who clearly uh, this issue affects differently from many others. The other thing is this. Why did this bill pass now in 2018? Well, I think it's because lynching or anti-lynching is a safe political issue. Why? Because lynching is largely seen as a problem of the past. So white people, Democrats, Republicans, Republicans, they can all support such a bill because it doesn't threaten their standing with their constituency It's no longer as relevant as it once was. Some people would think um, but we have to remember why it has taken a hundred years to pass, but we have to remember why it has taken one hundred years to pass an anti lynching bill in the first place. Too many elected officials either held personally racist views or they knew the people who elected them did, and they didn't want to risk uh, supporting a controversial bill. And so this goes for both parties. This goes for people across the aisle and uh, the color line and throughout uh, the the past century, is that passing an anti-lynching bill was seen as too risky, when really it should have been a very clear issue of justice versus injustice. And so once again, Uh, We have a history in the U.S. in politics uh, where convenience wins out over courage and complicity triumphs over confrontation. But as citizens who are also Christians, some issues of justice are simple. Some issues of justice, like lynching, are straightforward, and passing an anti-lynching bill should not have taken this long. But at least we have one on the books, finally. So that's it, folks. There's a ton we didn't cover, but I just wanted to highlight a few current events and give you some of my perspectives. I hope you found this helpful. Remember to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. We'll be back soon with more of our regularly scheduled programming, and thankfully, it won't just be my voice next time. But until then, we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic.